welcome to the Good Friday edition of Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Here with Charles Christopher Wilson Cook. William Cook. I thought you, it was Wilson. You always say Wilson. I thought you were kidding. Because you know I don't like Wilson. Oh no, I thought that was your name. No. <laughs> Charles Christopher William Cook. I stand corrected. Uh, and something we we both learned is if you write a lot and talk a lot, you make mistakes even about things you allegedly... No, and uh, so it's Good Friday and uh, approaching Easter, and I was just thinking, you know, uh, I sometimes refer to myself as a uh, as a Catholic who is religious but not spiritual, and I've heard Charlie on a couple of occasions refer to himself as an atheist who believes in original sin. What do you mean by that? Well, I'd start by saying it is a Good Friday, because I'm going to New Orleans this afternoon. <laughs> yes. So although I don't celebrate anything religious... Shall nonetheless be going to the city of Voodoo. Yes, and I'm sure in New Orleans you'll be keeping to all the Good Friday traditions of abstinence and oh, uh, absolutely fasting and sobriety and and all those as things. as I always do as you always do. Yes. What do I mean by that? I think I use it as a shorthand to convey that I think if man is not fallen in any cosmic or theological sense, the notion of his perfectibility is a silly one and although I'm not entirely sure what I what I mean by this certainly within the r- religious language I think there are such things as good and evil now I don't think you necessarily need a supernatural explanation for those two things could be genetic could be circumstantial could be preferences. I mean, when you read about serial killers, they very often enjoy it. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean in you know, the sense that Antonin Scalia would understand it and would argue that the devil is a real being and is sitting on their shoulder almost corrupting them. It could just be that we live in a world in which, for whatever reason, whether it's nature or nurture, those people are evil and they will behave in an evil way and that you can't reason them out of it Um, very often you read stories of people who went on to be serial killers or dictators ripping the wings off of small birds from a young age so I don't I don't necessarily mean it literally but I suppose I believe that men are born as savages and then given culture that they are I can't move away from the religious language (laughs) it's impossible isn't it well especially given the way you ask the question yeah well and uh, sort of a broader question related to that you know as a as a non-believer who is a conservative and very traditional in lots and lots of ways you know when you look at something like uh, Good Friday when you look at something like Easter and the uh cultural and uh, moral significance of that, you know, as someone who is, in an important sense, looking at it from the inside as a member of a culture that is deeply informed by these things, but in another sense, looking at it from the outside as someone who doesn't, uh, you know, believe at least literally in the, uh, in the truth and, uh, and uh, religious story of, of these things, what do you see uh, as the role of those sorts of religious ideas, those sorts of religious opinions in the culture and uh, in the way we think about politics and uh, and public affairs? Well, I'm an odd atheist in that I certainly don't wish to extirpate 
religion and I especially don't wish to extirpate Christianity uh, the Burkean in me recognizes that the country as it has developed and the institutions that it cherishes are inextricable from uh, the religion that in some cases inspired them but in other cases just populated the country and I like to give a uh, computer game analogy here that presume you were playing SimCity and you start in I mean, the, this is a slightly flawed analogy because of course the country didn't start here it has a great deal of British heritage and French heritage and Spanish heritage before this but suppose you start the country in 1776 or 1789 and you say go it really matters which variables you've plugged into the system and when I listen to the likes of very very smart people but Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris uh, all of whose work I, I like but when I listen to them talk about this country of pure reason that they would like to see a country based on the principles of of Spinoza for example I wonder whether they honestly believe that pressing go on the simulation from 1789 onward without the influence of Christianity would have yielded the same outcomes and I don't believe that it would for a number of reasons firstly the Anglo sphere and the institutions that made the free world and what we as Dan Hannan would say politely call the West but really mean the free English countries and indeed the rest of the world is free in, in so far as it copies those institutions largely came out of a Protestant tradition and that is to say that if you are of the belief that the hierarchy in matters spiritual can be abolished um, w without your soul being damned forever then you're much more likely to cut out the middleman in politics you're much more likely to cut off the head of the king you're much more likely to believe in individualism and individual rights and see a country in which a man's conscience is inviolable than if you have to go to a priest and you have to obey uh, a hierarchy and so when you look at the American settlement, freedom of speech, uh, local democratic institutions, the notion of representation, individual rights, the rule of law, you are... He said with a <laughs> smirk. You are looking at what, historically anyway, this is by no means to say, incidentally, that Catholics who come to America can't be full Americans. It's by no means to say that Muslims Jews, or Buddhist, Hindus Muslims. or Jews or Buddhists... But the frameworks that were put in by Protestants tended to have worked very well. So this is a slight digression from the question that you asked. But when I look at America, although I don't believe that Christianity is true, the fact that the institutions were largely contrived by people who did, or at least who were working within a framework that was nominally Christian matters a great deal but also that the country happens to have been populated by them because if you're running uh, my simulation in 1789 and you put all of the institutions in place but then you re replace the uh, 
the people yeah. with say the people of another country um, then you're going to get a, a very different outcome and I would just say on that front that Americans who don't think that the culture of the people whether that's religion whether that's political whether that's ideological matter should have a look at how badly the US constitution did in South America yeah. when it was effectively copied there because what happened was that the tension that we hear so much about now between the executive and branch and the legislature uh, caused gridlock as it does in America but instead of silly speeches on the house floor and the senate floor suggesting hostage takers and so on but really nothing bad happening there was a military coup right. <laughs> and and so you know I suppose what I'm trying to say is that to me Christianity is so inextricably linked with the political culture of this country that I would not want to see it disappear. Yeah, and um, I think that uh, it's it's often hard to talk about this sort of stuff because you end up conflating uh, religious terms and cultural terms uh, and ethnic terms and not always talking about the same thing. So for instance, I'm a, I'm a Catholic convert who has a sneaking admiration for a kind of early Puritan culture and am, you know, in retrospect, rather glad that it was Protestant institutions that prevailed during the time of the uh, founding of this country rather than Catholic institutions for the reasons that you spelled forth. But, you know, the genius of the uh, Anglo-Protestant model and its institutions is that they can be successful where you don't necessarily have Anglo-Protestant people. Uh, so, for instance, Anglo-Protestant institutions doing very well in places like Hong Kong. Uh, in India, to an extent, oh, absolutely, where, yeah, and uh, so they are they are transferable. So it's not only that a, the issue that a place like the United States can welcome all sorts of immigrants who can be part of this settlement, as you call it, part of this uh, tradition, but also that that tradition is in many ways exportable. Although I guess you know, as you're pointing out, there are um, there are limits on that. You know, in the case of India and Hong Kong, you had you know British occupation and colonialism to sort of help those things take root. Whereas if we could just draft, you know, airdrop copies of the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and, uh, you know, and some early speeches onto places like Afghanistan and Iraq, and then have them grow up, you know, in the same way with the same institutions over the course of a few decades or longer, it would be a nicer world to live in if that were the case, but, uh, but it isn't. One of the things I think is interesting, and you... you Sorry, gotta, I, should okay, just, yeah. I should just say that although I agree with you that... Hong Kong works very well and is not of the same culture as the United States in, in its history anyhow. I do think, and nobody who reads me would be remotely surprised to believe this, I do think the United States is better than everywhere else. And to me, when I'm trying to work out why, one of the reasons for that is the high level of religious adherence and what that does for a country's civil society. And I what mean, does it do for a country's civil well, society? Well, Ramesh makes a, a strong point, and he's extremely Catholic. Right. He's <laughs> um, a, an Anglo-Protestant uh, guy politically uh, who's a Catholic named Ramesh Panuru. Right. Yes. But he, and that's America, that's yes, the genius exactly. of America. But From Kansas, no less. Yeah. No, what, what it does um, is to act as a bullock uh, against government in many instances by providing a thriving and independent and self-sufficient civil society and it always interests me that conservatives on the right 
uh, sorry, atheists on the right can be disparaging towards the religious because I can't think of a greater defense of my conscience rights as an atheist than the defense of conscience rights from largely Christians. True. And the civil society work of of religious groups. So this is no, by no means to say that everybody should become a Christian and it's by no means to say that Christians are better than say Jews or Sikhs or Hindus but there is a reinforcing quality of Christianity I think in the way that a country thinks and behaves and that a way in the way that the country's institutions behave that benefits everybody and I wouldn't want to test what happens if that were removed. Yeah, and I think that that anti-hierarchical aspect of the reformation of the early, you know, Protestant movements is very much, you know, what sort of informs English liberalism and, and hence uh, American liberalism. So something I'm curious about though is, you know, as a guy who doesn't have a, uh, you know, a religious affiliation uh, or any particular religious beliefs, do you have a favorite religion? Something that sort of you know sneaks up on you, and you say, you know, I mean, maybe I don't believe that. But sure, here's something that I. Well, admire. I was raised Protestant, and my sneaking regard is for Protestantism. I think I like the rebelliousness of it too, and the individuality um, of it. So I suppose, you know, it is possible, isn't it, to believe both that. A culture would collapse if its dominant faith went away, and also to believe that that faith is false. Hmm. Sure. And I'm sometimes asked a gotcha question. Ah, but if you don't think that it's true, then why are you in favor of it? Why are you nervous of it disappearing? Well, uh, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, and and to, to be honest with you, it's not just Christianity. Now you ask me what my favorite religion is. Uh, I think the Protestant element is probably the key. Yeah. Um, this is everybody that I work with here seems to be Catholic. Uh, I'm marrying a Catholic, so I, I, this is not anti-Catholicism. I do think Americans sometimes romanticize Catholic uh, attitudes towards economics a little bit, especially sure. conservative Catholics. It's not as if the Catholic Church has a long history of being Hayek. But, no, Protestantism, I think, is the underpinning of, of the whole game. And I'm absolutely unconvinced by the idea that you can just keep that, you know, scaffolding and, and move to a, a culture that is based upon the ethical principles of Christianity without the rest. And, of course, this is what the much underquoted in the light of Orwell's runaway success, Aldous Huxley was essentially getting at, which was that when you remove almost absolute morality from the public square, you end up very often in a difficult place. And I'm not, I'm, I can't say I'm convinced that America wouldn't go down the same road. Yeah, and of course, uh, I think we're in the process of finding out uh, exactly where that that road ends as these institutions and uh, habits become less prominent in our national character. You know, my sneaking admiration, while I mentioned, you know, I sort of like early Puritans, uh, uh, early American Puritans, also Quakers. 
Hmm. You know, there's something about the uh, sort of uh, small d democratic uh, aesthetic of the uh, Quaker tradition and that sense of simplicity and sobriety and discipline and all the characteristics that I personally lack that I find uh, But the pacifism is difficult. Well, you know, that's actually something I'm fairly close to in some ways. You know, I have a, you know, a much uh, a different attitude toward, uh, I think, uh, you know, military intervention and actions than, than you but do. But doesn't it transcend the military with Quakers? Oh, sure, yeah, I think so. I think they, um, they're they taking the turn-the-other-cheek thing very, very uh, seep- uh, seriously and deeply. almost said seeply to combine <laughs> those words. Uh, as you can tell, it's been a bit of a long day. So, um, yeah, I'm not quite where they are with that, just as uh, you know, as much as I had, you know, have written this week about uh, Gandhi and his civil disobedience. I'm not 100% there with him on the uh, nonviolent, non-cooperation stuff, particularly as he applied it to things like the Holocaust. And uh, you're speaking of which, I was just thinking of this earlier. Um, you know, there were a lot of fair criticisms of, of Mohandas Gandhi, but a big one is he really picked the wrong war to back. You know, he supported the British in the First World War and then opposed yes. the Second. And uh, probably would have been better to do it the other way around, I think. You make a pretty good case that the First World War was worth staying out of, I think. But not so much the Second World War, I, I think. I'm remember the, the reason I asked the question about Quakers, and I may be slightly misremembering this, but I'm trying to remember back to writing my thesis on the Second Amendment, and one of the criticisms that I tried to address was, well, all right, if the founders were so uh, secure in their assumption... If you're listening in the car, by the way, that's that's our sirens. They're not behind you. Um, If the founders were so secure in their assumption that everybody was armed and always would be, and it was really a non-topic, which is one of the things that I argued, there wasn't really a debate over the right to bear arms per se, then why did so few of the state constitutions in the early colonies and the New Republic not uh, secure the right to bear arms? And, And, you know, that's sort of... That's sort of a logical fallacy to, to, to think like that. But what very much interested me were that two of the states that did secure the right to bear arms were Delaware and uh, Pennsylvania. And the reasons were that Delaware had been a French colony and it didn't have a, a large body of British common law on which it just could uh, rely, it could just carry over. Um, and Pennsylvania was full of Quakers and so the powers that be in Pennsylvania were pretty nervous that there might be some sort of move to uh, restrict the right to bear arms when it came to drafting the constitutional drafting laws and remember the Quakers did a great job in protecting and arguing for religious liberty Mm -hmm. so they had demonstrated their clout and that is one great thing about Quakers and always has been for that, for that matter. So I just asked on, on those grounds. Cause they're terribly in, terrible in politics. You know, there's pro-Palestinian stuff and, sure. and all that business. But they, they historically have some good things uh, oh, no going question. for them. No question. And of course, one of the ironies of all that is Pennsylvania is now one of the best states in the Union when it comes to uh, the True. right to keep and bear arms. Um, as, I, as I remember somewhat longingly from my uh, years of carrying a gun there, which I, I cannot currently do. You know, uh, this whole conversation, you're talking about the, the situation with Pennsylvania and the early part of the Republic, puts me in mind of something we've been discussing a little bit uh, off the record this week, which is the question of uh, federalism. You know, and we're looking at the situation in Nevada with Bundy and, uh, and some other things. In the early part of, of American history, um, even though there was this, you know, 
this overwhelmingly white Protestant English-speaking culture, you did have some radical, radical differences within the country. I mean, Quaker Pennsylvania hmm. was a very, very different place. It established churches before incorporation. Yeah, of course. It was a very, very different place from Massachusetts at that time. And then, you know, when you start talking about the early 19th century and the expansion west, and you've got, you know, the Scots-Irish and other parts of the country, you've got some radically different kinds of people. And a lot of the stuff that we fight over... Um, you know, you can't solve, as, 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 I, as I wrote earlier this week, you can't solve problems of principle with uh, just simple pragmatic solutions. I mean, it's, it just doesn't work that way. The principles are always going to be there. But you sure can take away the need to fight over them so much. And, of course, the genius of federalism and beyond that localism is that you allow people in different places and different sorts of communities to actually have different kinds of standards. And I think that, you know, when you're having... When you've got something like Obamacare and you're going to have one national law about how you handle things like contraception or how you handle things, you know, like religious liberties and what that means and what sorts of examples, what sort of exemptions you have, um, then you're always going to have to fight over that in the same way that when you've got a place in which the government owns 90% of the land, you're going to end up fighting with the government over the use of it. And I think that the country would be in many ways, you know, far better off if we were all able to accept the fact, at least in principle, that Texas and Utah can be very, very different places economically, culturally, religiously, um, and politically than, say, New Jersey or Maine or Rhode Island or indeed here in New York where we're sitting with more sirens in the background if you're driving. And uh, But there's, you know, not only on the left, but in some elements of the right, too, there's a, you know, a great deal of resistance to that. And you know, if you take a situation like uh, you know, abortion, the most divisive issue, one of the reasons why it's so divisive and one of the reasons why it's so bitter, of course, is because we've got one federal law. Well, wow, and not even one that was passed, which right. makes it even more difficult right. in, the, in people's minds. Yeah, one national regime coming out of a fairly questionable court decision or two that has, you know, one model for the whole country. Now, you know, I'm pro-life and I am, uh, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say fanatically pro-life, but it's a big issue for me. You know, something I care about a lot. And I would be much, much happier, I think, with this stuff being divided and decided on a state-by-state basis, knowing full well that if we did that, abortion would be legal in lots of the country. It would be legal absolutely in New York and Connecticut and Massachusetts, New Jersey, and California. Yeah, it might be mandatory in some places. That I wouldn't support. But it's one thing to have the Supreme Court saying, this is going to be the policy for the whole country. Mm-hmm. And another thing to say, well, we're going to let the state legislature sort that out. Now, if that were the case, you know, I would certainly be lobbying for the Texas legislature to outlaw it. And then I'd be lobbying for the legislatures to outlaw it in places like New York and New Jersey and, and Rhode Island as well. But it would be a different sort of fight, I think. One, because I would be being decided under, under federalist uh, models, but also because, of course, it would be being decided through the actual political process of votes and representation and that sort of thing, rather than you know the penumbras of someone's personal preferences masquerading as constitutional law. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right when you say that the left and the right are bad on this. I think that the left is an awful lot worse and and the reason for that is that Republicans on this question are hypocrites and they were especially hypocritical during 
the Bush administration, and I think it's one of the reasons why they lost their reputation for so many of the positions that they had previously taken. People used to think Republicans were great on foreign policy in Iraq, put paid to that. They used to think Republicans were the small government party, but with the spending and with no child left behind and with Medicare Part D, it became very difficult to make that case to the extent that Barack Obama could run in 2008 and pretend that he was going to cut the deficit and stop borrowing and so on. And federalism was another example of that, you know, national education plans and so on and so forth. Now, conservatives can do an awful lot better in this area and and haven't shown a great willingness to, to legislate in that way, possibly because it's difficult to sell. I'll come back to that. But we're never, ever going to win the leftover on the question of federalism for two reasons, I think. The first one is that uh, libertarianism and progressivism have precisely the opposite views as to what is good and necessary for a society to function. Now, I think that libertarians, by and large, don't really care how you live your life as long as you abide by a few basic principles. Don't hurt other people and don't steal their stuff and don't violate the Constitution. Can I interrupt for just one second? I don't think it's necessarily true to say they don't care how you live your life. But they legally, would say yeah, that it's not a political issue. Right. Sorry, I meant legally they don't care. Right. Now, progressives do care because they think that they have a vision for society that should be imposed. And they think that they know how best you should live. In some regards, it's puritanical. Now, one of the great tweets I saw recently was that any time the progressive says justice, social justice, reproductive justice, it should be replaced with righteousness. So you can see the inner puritan. And I think they do have that vision, you know, you will often hear them say, well, it would be all very well to leave it to the States, but then what happens to the woman who's in Lubbock, Texas, and she wants an abortion, and she doesn't have a car, and so on and so forth. And, and yeah, there is, there is an argument there, and there is a question there, but it's a general rule that basically says we know better for her than, uh, than she does. And, and the second reason, and the related reason, is that it has to be acknowledged that in the past, American federalism has led to some terrible outcomes. Now, you want some leeway for states to make bad or good decisions, otherwise they're not actually free and you don't have a federal system. Much in the same way as it's you know, when when the president says, Well, yes, I accept that Congress has the power to do this, but they're doing it wrong. Well, yeah, okay, but Congress is allowed to do things wrong. So the process from a libertarian perspective matters far more to us than the outcome. But it would be churlish not to acknowledge that segregation was pretty terrible. And that you know, so when you when President Obama says, as he did recently, that, well, I understand why people want greater federalism, but we sort of have to remember what happened last time, uh, I do understand where they're coming from. Now, where I think that is absurd is, you know, is much in the same way as I think that when the Supreme Court ruled on that section of the Civil Rights Act and everyone suddenly pretended that we would be going back to 1964 overnight, as if America hasn't changed and hasn't changed permanently on the question of race, as if it's just being held up by this law, this piece of paper that is there, which of course it's not. But those two things are always going to inspire fear in the minds of the left when you say federalism is a lack of control and and a fear that America would somehow backslide into Jim Crow. Conservatives, on the other hand, I really believe can be convinced on this question. I'm not remotely optimistic about anything dispositionally, especially when it comes to politics and great countries. But it is far, far easier 
for a social conservative sitting in Mississippi to say, I am very much against the legalization of marijuana, but I'm happy to vote for a president who says he's against it, but doesn't want the federal government to have anything to do with it, and then lobby Mississippi to keep it illegal and continue at my church or my charity to provide support for people who are addicted to drugs. Now, that is a position that people can get behind. Sure. Whereas I think if you're a progressive, what you tend to do, and certainly what has happened in the last 20 years, and we're seeing it with gay marriage, is you want the outcome. So you want gay marriage. So you embrace federalism for a little bit and you get it into a majority of states and then you try and get it into all the states and then you try and get it encoded nationally. In other words, it's not the process of federalism that appeals to you. Right. It's the outcome, but that's just your, your temporary means. Now, conservatives are hypocrites because when they like the national outcome, they're quite happy to pass national laws as well. But in terms of dealing with gay marriage, with marijuana, you know, with prison reform, with spending even, um, I honestly think that conservatives could be convinced to take a more federalist viewpoint so that they can live in their communities and let the Portland, Oregon types get on it without irritating them. Yeah, well, you know, exactly. I think that if, you know, all these uh, Scandinavian refugees in Minnesota and places like that want to have a situation in which their state government is spending, you know, 50 percent of Minnesota's GDP on the sort of Scandinavian model... Well, it's not something I would support, but uh, certainly something I would prefer to see done on a state-by-state basis with competition and dynamism among the states than to have a national uh, policy of doing that. And, of course, there is you know this old cliche about the states being the uh, laboratories of democracy, but there is something to that. And occasionally, you know, you might discover something good or worthwhile uh, in a state that's got a very, very different model of government than what you or I would want. I think, by the way, Brandeis wrote that line. I think so, yeah. Which is interesting given our conversation last <laughs> week, but do carry on. Yeah. Uh, Brandeis University not quite living up to uh, not quite living up to his reputation. So to bring it back to what we started with, I guess then, and I hate to say this as the uh, Catholic convert in the in the conversation, but the progressives are in a sense the, the, the Catholics of, of politics in the sense that there's a very strong sense of hierarchy, a sense that if you don't have a situation in which somebody is in charge, you're going to get, you know, outcomes that are anarchical or chaotic. Whereas this, you know, kind of Protestant tradition of, uh, well, hey, anybody can go start their own church mm-hmm. also, you know, has a sense of, uh, of moving into politics where you can rely on things like civil society, where you can have experimentation, where you don't have to have a one-size-fits-all uh, universal order. Right, and this is why it's been so peculiar of late to see conservatives behaving as badly as they have on the Tea Party right. And I consider myself politically very much more in line with the Tea Party than the so-called Republican establishment. Mm. You know, when it comes to retrenchment, when it comes to taxes, when it comes to federalism, when it comes to firearms policy, when it comes to constitutional adherence, I'm much more in the Tea Party camp. But what you just described for progressivism in your comparison with Catholicism is a central catechism, is a Vatican, if you will. Yeah. And it's been odd to watch Tea Party groups spring up on that Protestant tradition of, well, I'm going to this part of the village to start my own religion, and then start enforcing conformity, yeah. <laughs> trying to get rid of anyone who doesn't agree with them, almost agreeing centrally what these little units all agreed upon, and uh, these little satellites. And then, and then enforcing that catechism. That's a, a paradox, isn't it? Well, that's actually, and, and of course, from the Catholic point of view, that's the real downside of Protestantism, is you know, the sort of antinomian uh, tradition, which is why 
you know, as we always point out, you've got 28,000 Protestant denominations and, and one Catholic church. You know, when I was, um, you know, in the process of converting, I was sort of going through this thing of I'd been raised in the Methodist church and deciding which church it was I wanted to belong to. And if you go back and look at the stuff that everyone was excommunicating each other over, in, in retrospect, it's pretty comical. So, you know, though Methodists began as a reform movement within the, within the Anglican tradition led by John Wesley, and Wesley never wanted to break away and form a separate church. And the thing that finally got them, the thing they finally threw down the gauntlet over, was this issue of pew leasing. So you may know this, that uh, it was a long tradition in Protestant churches, and I think probably in some Catholic churches as well, that one of the ways they raised money was through the leasing of pews. So your family had a family pew in the church, and you paid the church X amount of rent every year on that. And it was partly a social status thing. You know, the wealthier you were, the more prominent a pew you would rent, and that sort of thing. And the Methodists wanted the Episcopalians and the Anglicans to stop pew leasing and the Episcopalians wouldn't do it and they said fine that's the last straw that's the last thing we can do so we're going to break away and form our own church and you people are heathens and that's that you know and of course so you take it back from there well the Anglicans broke off from the you know Roman church over the issue of Henry VIII's sex life which is not terribly important to me either uh, at least in terms of you know being a fundamental kind of religious concern so there is a something to that, you know, this puritanical streak, this um, this habit of excommunicating people who disagree with you on small things. Um, there's the old Saturday Night Live skit where people are talking about, you know, Catholic or Protestant, Protestant, and they go through this whole thing, and it gets to be some, you know, 14 qualifier thing, and at the end they disagree, and it's, you know, heretic. Well, you, and you know what that reminds me of very much, uh, again, is is the left. Yeah. You know, the great life of Brian joke. Uh, it was mocking the tiny differences in orthodoxy that Marxist groups had in the people's 1970s. People's Front of Judea versus Yeah, the you Judea. the Judean People's Front. Oh, we're the People's Front of Judea. Where's the popular front? He's over there. And there's a guy <laughs> sitting on his own. But anyone who's hung around Marxists, is, you can't avoid doing it. Although Oxford. there is a very similar joke about libertarians where, you know, consequentialist or deontologicalist. You're right. And it goes through, you know, and eventually it ends up being what... Uh, um, Rothbardian versus uh, uh, the guy who wrote Anarchy State Utopia, Nozick. And uh, then they excommunicate each other at the end. And then you get the cultural element of these things where it's really nothing to do with ideology or philosophy or theology at all. It's just, it's long ceased to be. There's a, a sick joke, but a, a funny joke, I think, from the troubles in Ireland that all English children know, which is that a, an Englishman is, is walking through uh, Belfast, and he suddenly feels this, a gun in the small of his back, and the guy behind him says, "You Catholic or Protestant?" And he says, "Oh, uh, well, I'm an atheist." And the guy says, "Fine, but are you a Catholic atheist or a Protestant <laughs> <Exactly>. atheist?" <laughs> you know, and that's when it just ceases to be about these things at all. I think there's there's just as much of that that goes on in, on in America too. Yeah, and you know, well, and maybe we start to close out on this, but um. You often hear atheists and, uh, and sort of anti-theists talk about all the people who died in religious wars and such things. They actually turn out to be a fairly small number. And, uh, you know, the Northern Ireland conflict was about as much about religion sure. as, uh, I don't know, whatever metaphor I can't quite think of right well, now it that was expresses fanned, how trivial it is. It was fanned by religion and tribalism, but it wasn't about them. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's definitely a tribal question more than you know a question of religious orthodoxy because you've got you know actually fairly non-observant people on both sides of that. But um, so yeah, I think there's a, there's uh, an interesting 
history there of, uh, of this excommunication. And my favorite and least favorite aspect of that within, within our world, and you're talking about the Tea Party groups, is this desire to excommunicate anybody who has ever strayed off of your policy path on one issue. And you know, every day I get a hundred emails from people saying, you know, Mitch McConnell's not a real conservative. Ted Cruz isn't a real conservative. Rick Perry isn't a real conservative. Marco Rubio isn't a real conservative. They've all been wrong about various things and they've all, you know, done political compromises that make us all uncomfortable. But if your politics are the sort of thing that's telling you well, Rick Perry's not a real conservative, and as a Republican, I couldn't vote for Rick Perry. Then you don't have a, re- uh, a political view anymore. What you have is a religious view. Sure. And a crazy one at that. Well, let's finish uh, with me telling everybody uh, the funniest German joke that I know. <laughs>